I'm sure Norm was an incredible engineer or whatever he did, but I think he's missed his calling. I think he's supposed to be a pastor, a preacher. Don't you think that? <laughs> you know, uh, I have been here uh, really just a little over three months, and uh, often I feel quite inadequate for the task. Those times that I don't feel inadequate, I'm just self-deceived. I, I realize that because uh, Paul tells us that we're not adequate in ourselves to think anything as of ourselves. Our, our adequacy comes from him. But I want to let you all know something that, that transpires here every week, and maybe you don't know about it. Uh, there's a group of people who meet here. You know, Some will meet here on the first week of the month, some on the second, some on the third, and on. I meet with them back in the prayer room just before... You know, the services start actually earlier in the morning and we pray. And then what these these folk do is they divide and conquer. You know, they go through every square foot of this place, every single room. They'll walk into the classrooms and they'll pray because they know that the kids are coming in there. And so they pray, God, you know what kids are coming in here today. And you know what they're dealing with at home. Would you open their eyes and they pray for the teacher? You know the preparation that's happened that hasn't been able to happen. Would you work? They go to the doors and they pray for the people coming in. God, you know who's going to come in here today. Would your, would your spirit hook up with them as they walk through? Because unless you build the house, it's just not going to be built. They go through the staff offices and the choir room and, and the pews where you're sitting. They you've prayed for you already this morning. It's, it's a, a fantastic. It's really the, the backbone ministry of, of the church. And they haven't had to recruit in a long time because you know what? Folk get into this and they love it so much that they never leave. However, you know, through uh, atrophy and attrition and and the rest of it, we just want to invite you all to think about being a part of this. And here's the deal. We're we're going to have a prayer party. Okay, those two words don't normally go together, but we're putting them together. It's going to be a prayer party. It's going to be fun. And we'd like you to to attend, to come. Just sign up at the uh, information booth out here that you're going to come to this thing. No commitments. And, and we're going to talk about the ministry, and we're going to pray, and we're going to have food. It's going to be fun. Uh, and after it's all said and done, it's not going to fit your schedule. That's fine. But maybe you look at it and you go, yeah, I would like to support the church in, in this way as well. Then you can will certainly fit your schedule into it somewhere. So prayer party, sign up at the information uh, desk. It's going to be wonderful. Um, like I said, I've only been here three and a half months. And what I'm supposed to do right now, I'm told, is deliver a State of the Union address, kind of recapsulating the whole year. But I haven't been here for 75% of the year, and so I guess I could fake it. But I'm thinking that probably wouldn't be good. So I want to look forward for, for the remaining minutes as far as what the FAC is going to look like one year down the road, two, three, five. What especially it's going to look like here in the big room. And so let me take you on a trip this morning to Worshipville, USA. Okay, Worshipville, USA, corner of 5th and Main. There are four churches on the corners. First church we, we come across is Exalted Above All Cathedral. Okay, now EAAC is the very, very high church. The only electric instrument they have is their massive pipe organ. It plays every prelude and postlude and offertory and only plays Bach and Mozart and Beethoven. The, the, the robed choir will sing, led by their robed choir director, but they only sing in Latin, German, or French. The, the, the congregation will sing some contemporary songs from time to time, but they define contemporary as that which was written between 1850 and 1900. Nothing worth being called music was written after 1900. When the robed pastor delivers his 23-minute homily... He had speckled with quotes from Pulitzer Prize winners and philosophers, a very intellectually stimulating experience. And when they leave that Sunday, they are sure that God has been more accepting of their worship than the other churches in town. Now, the other churches in town, 
have their ideas about what happens at EAC as well. It's just bells and smells. It's too stuffy, that kind of thing. Now, on the southeast corner of Fifth and Main in Worshipville, you've got another church, First Traditional. Now, First Traditional is it's traditional. The choir sings Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, which everybody attends. The choir tours the southeast, you know, every other summer. The, the congregation is filled with children bust in from Pagan Town. Uh, they will always sing, congregation will sing three Fanny Crosby songs in a Bill Gaither course on a regular basis. And when Brother Bob gets up to preach, it's out of the King James Version, it's for 75 minutes, and it's always followed up by an altar call. And after church, when the congregation goes to fellowship at the Cracker Barrel, they are sure that God has smiled on their worship service more than any other worship service in town. Now, all the other churches in town think of first traditional stuck in a denominational rut from the 1950s. A third church on the northwest corner of 5th and Main is Cozy Creek Community Church. Now, Cozy Creek is a contemporary church. The congregation has never sung a song older than two years. The, the technological team boasts of being the largest ministry team in the church. Second to the yoga outreach team and the latte team and the parking lot team. When the pastor gives his, his talk... He does it in either blue jeans or doctors with no socks. And if he does use the Bible, it's going to be the message. And when the church is all done, the folk leave Cozy Creek. They are sure God has smiled on their worship service more than any other worship service in town. Now, all the other churches, which have lost people to Cozy Creek, by the way, have their ideas of what goes on in Cozy Creek as well. You know, smells of Hollywood production and consumerism and Disneyland-esque techniques. Now, the fourth church on the corner of... Fifth in Maine in Worshipville is the Tabernacle of the Anointed Holy Ghost Power Spirit Come Down. The Tab, as they like to call. Now, when you go to the Tab, you don't go to church. You experience church. And whatever they sing at the Tab, I mean, they really sing at the Tab with everything of who they are. The pastor will preach and end his sermon when the Holy Spirit says so. The name of the game at the tab is freedom. You can do whatever. You can run around the auditorium. You can stand in the pew, jump and scream and, and roll on the roll and, and bark like a dog. Whatever you're interested in doing is part of the worship experience of the tab. And later on that afternoon, when the service finally winds down, their congregants leave. Sure, the God has smiled more widely on their worship service than any other worship service in town. Now, the other churches have their views of what goes on in the tab as well. None too edifying. Now, when, when I was in school, one of the things they said is that in the 21st century, the biggest war that will be waged within the walls of the church will be the worship wars. And that's, that's been true, I think, in many respects. And this is a, is a significant question for us, because I think you're going to agree with me, right, that, that this is the hub of, of the activity at FAC. And what transpires in the big room is really the thermostat. It's going to impact the rest of the body. And so we've got to ask ourselves, the worship that goes on in this room, is it pleasing to God? Is it acceptable to God? Very significant question as we think about moving ahead. And so what I want to invite you to do is turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel 6 as we look briefly at an event in the life of David that probably defined his understanding of worship, of what is acceptable worship, more than any other event in his life. Second Samuel 6. And we'll start right in. Verse 1, good place to start. It says, David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 
30,000 in all, he and all his men set out from Bala of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. Now, lesson you're thinking that I know why he brought 30,000 people, because that's a pretty big boat that Noah built, and it's going to take 30,000 folk to carry it. Wrong ark. Uh, the, the word ark just means box. It's a carrying box. And that was a pretty big one that Noah had. But this is a different carrying box. Let me give you a little history on this one real quick because it's central to our story. When, when Israel, the nation of Israel, comes out of Egypt, they had no clue how to worship God. For the last 430 years, they just watched the way the Egyptians did it. And so God stops them off at Sinai and says, oh, no, 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 this is how you're supposed to do it. And he gives them a relatively complex uh, blueprint on how to worship. And part of that was a tent structure that we call the tabernacle. It would, when it got foundations, we called it the temple. But it's, it's a tabernacle. Two rooms in it, right? The first room's the holy place. And it had three pieces of furniture in there. No lazy boy, but three pieces of furniture. Priests could go in there all the time. And they did. And they went in and they worshiped God and they besought God on behalf of the nation of Israel in the holy place. The back room couldn't go in there. One guy could go in there once a year for just a short time. That was the most holy place. And there was a curtain between the holy place and the most holy place. But what's in the most holy place is the Ark of the Covenant. This, this Ark right here. Now, the Ark is like the size of a big coffee table. It's about four feet long, two feet wide, two feet tall. I think it probably resembled one of those cedar chests. You ever see those that people push up to the back of their their bed and they put blankets and stuff in probably about like that except for it's a little bit more ornate covered with gold inside and out no hinges at this point so the top that they made for it was a separate piece that sat on it it was uh, gold a couple of angels that were uh, built into it and that top is called the mercy seat now why this thing is so significant for the israelites the, the box is is really secondary the box isn't the important thing it's what's inside the box that makes the box important and what's inside the box different things at different times in their history but always a copy of the ten commandments the the israelites saw this as a covenant that god initiated he made with them saying i'm going to be your god and you're going to be my people and i promise and i promise and so they wrote this well god wrote this down right and they stuck it in the box and they carried this around because this is the most important thing this was written by god for them This is huge. This is what gave it significance. The whole box came to reflect and represent the presence of God, intimacy with God. It's very significant. Let's look at text. Exodus 25, God says, There above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony, I will meet with you and give you all my commands. This is the place God sought to meet with the Israelites, was this Ark of the Covenant. Whenever you read in the Old Testament and you read about God's wings and between the wings, they're referring to the wings of these cherubim, these, these cherubs, on the, the, the mercy seat. Very significant, very important aspect. And the way you would carry this thing is you put little, there were little ringlets on the bottom of the Ark and they slipped two poles through them and the, the priests carried it on their shoulders. And there's a reason why they transported it this way. They must not touch the holy things, talking about the furniture, or they will die. Now, this is important for us because sometimes we think the rules of God are are snickety, picky type things and are really kind of irrelevant. 
that really are, are guidelines for us to protect us. I mean, they're guards for us. Uh, the reason why God wanted it carried is because if someone touched the thing, they would die. Now, God's not being mean here. It's like if your little boy comes up to the stove and he sees it glowing orange, it looks kind of nice. And so he's reaching over to touch it. You're going to stop him. Whoa, hang on, man. Don't get near that thing. Because if you touch it, you're going to scream. It's going to burn. It's going to hurt. And what God is saying with the ark, basically, he says, pure holiness. We cannot touch it. And when you touch it, you cannot help but die. It's just going to be the way it is. So please don't touch it. Right. This was the injunction in which it started. And so David is uh, uh, going through this uh, this deal in Second Samuel six. Let me back up for just a second. Forgot something on the ark. Just so you know, it was constructed by Moses or Moses under his watch about 1450 in the desert. Um, it was then. When they got in the promised land, 1375, they put up the tabernacle at a place called Shiloh. It, it hung out there in the Holy of Holies. Then in 1075, uh, Eli, who was the priest at that time, remember this story? His boys decided to take the ark into battle. They'd done this kind of thing before. It wasn't a huge thing, but they took it into battle and lost the battle. So the Philistines got the ark. And the Philistines are thinking, <laughs> we've got Israel's God. Yeah, this is all right. And Israel's thinking, oh, we lost our God. Now what do we do? But the Philistines, what they do is they say, well, what do you do with Israel's God? Well, let's set them up in one of our cities. And so they set them up in Gath. And suddenly a plague hit Gath. And they said, well, this is no good. So they moved it to Ekron. And they said, here, you guys take it for a while. So in Ekron, suddenly plague hits Ekron. And they say, well, this is no good. And so they kept moving it between the Philistine cities. And finally, all the Philistine area is under a plague. And they're saying, let's get rid of this thing. It's a bad luck charm. God's ticked off at us. Let's just get rid of this thing. So they put it on a cart, hooked up some oxen to it, pointed it towards Israel and said, go, get out of here. In Beth Shemesh, which is the border city in Israel. These guys are working their field one day. And all of a sudden, this ox cart comes walking towards them. And they, they, they look and they say, it's the ark of God. Oh, we got God back. You know, it's Philistine thinking is working into God's people. We got God back. And so they're real excited. But then they look at each other and they say, you know, I have not, never really seen the ark up close before. I mean, it's always carried by the priest and they got it covered and it's in this back room. And, but it's right here. Look at this. And one of them gets this bright idea and says, you know what? I'm told that the Ten Commandments, actually written by God, are in this box right now. This was about 400 years ago. And these guys are going, really? Really? I mean, by God, in the box? Yeah. Well, maybe the Philistines took it out. Maybe we should look just to make sure it's still there. And so they looked into the ark. And this is what ended up happening in 1 Samuel 6, verse 19. It says, but God struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death. Because they looked into the ark of the Lord, the people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. And the men of Bethshemesh asked, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God, to whom will the ark go up from here? In other words, how can we get rid of this thing? Where are we going to send it? I think this is hilarious. Everybody wants the ark of God. And now all of a sudden, nobody wants it. Let's pass this thing off. Where are we going to dump this thing? Verse 21. Then they sent messengers to the people of Kiriath-Jarim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to your, your place. In other words, you take this thing for a while. 
So the men of Kiriath Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord. They took it to Abinadab's house on the hill, just in case you wondered where Abinadab lived, and consecrated Eliezer, his son, to guard the ark of the Lord. Okay, have you ever heard of Kiriath Jerim? You probably have not. Most scholars have not heard of Kiriath Jerim. They have no clue where this place is. Very insignificant place. They take it to this guy's house named Abinadab and they stick it in his garage. This is, wow, when you think about this, this reflects the person of God. Now, it's interesting. It stays in this guy's garage for 20 years until Saul gets on the throne. And when Saul gets on the throne, he's on the throne 40 years and he never goes and gets it. It's almost as if in Saul's mind it doesn't exist, which is radical because first command of a king is to read the law and if he would, the book Bible is only like seven books long at this point. If he would have read it partially, he would have known the central figure that the, the Ark of the Covenant is and that God is going to meet them at the Ark. You better have the Ark. But Saul doesn't give a rip about the Ark. That's an indictment on him. And this is God giving himself a love picture. And his people kind of just put it in the garage as some unknown person in an unknown place, letting it gather dust. But David... This is cool because when David gets on the throne, keep in mind, David has never seen worship with the ark before. When he gets on the throne, his first order of business is, let's go get the ark. See, David had been reading the word. David knew the significance of this. David knew where this ark was. He had no authority to go uh, trump Saul. But as soon as Saul's out of the way, he goes to get this thing. And he forms himself a worship parade. And and as he does, he learns a very significant lesson about worship. And that lesson is this. Acceptable worship requires, I mean, it requires an obedient heart. He's going to learn this the hard way. Uh, Back in 2 Samuel 6, verse 3, it says, They set out, or set the the ark. Oh, hang on. Let me check on that. Stop for a second. Let's, Let's look at 1 Chronicles. Have we got that? David, and this is First Chronicles 13 through 16. It's an elongated story, so if you want to do further study, there's where you want to go. David confirmed with, confirmed with each of his officers, the commanders of thousands, the commanders of hundreds, and he said to the whole assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you, and if it is the will of the Lord our God, let us send word far and wide to the rest of our brothers throughout the territories of Israel, all the nation of Israel, and also to the priests and Levites who are with them in their towns and pasture lands to come and join us. Let's bring the ark of our God back to us, for we did not inquire of it during the reign of Saul. The whole assembly agreed to do this because it seemed right to the people. If you were to go to Psalm 68, verses 24 through 27, it gives you a picture of what this parade looks like. Very organized. All of the the tribes are there. The full marching band is there. It is just a major, major deal. I mean, all these people travel in for this. And so 2 Samuel 6, verse 3, it says, They set the ark of God on a new cart. All right, that's probably not the best thing. Maybe the Philistines used an old dirty cart. See, and they've got a new one, so they're a little bit better. And they brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ahio was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with songs and with harps and lyres and tambourines and cisterns and cymbals. You've got the parade going on. There's ticker tape happening. This is a huge, wonderful thing. God is coming back into to Israel. Now, let me ask you, do you think the people were sincere? I'm going to guess so. 
Do you think that the people were, were, were celebrating with all their might? Do you think they were celebrating with all their might? I guess so. It says that. They were probably feeling an excitement, and electricity for God. He's coming back. They probably were feeling the, the right things, maybe like some of the things we might feel here on Sunday morning. However, does that, the feelings, mean that you're not within the displeasure of God? No, it doesn't mean that at all. Verse 6, when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. This is huge. Uzzah's father was Abinadab the guy that watched this thing for the last 60 years, who was inconvenienced, no doubt, because the ark was at his house, but he took care of it. Uh, This guy grew up with the ark. Uzzah was a friend of David. Uzzah was perhaps a dad and and a a, a husband. And, And you look at this and you go, God, what are you doing? I mean, this is not that big of a deal. He did probably what you and I would have done. You're walking behind this thing, and there's a pothole, and the oxen stumble, and the thing starts sliding. You're watching the Ark of God. It's coming down towards a big mud puddle. It's going to hit the ground. What do you do? Well, well, naturally, you try to stop it. Probably that's what Uzzah did. And this is important for us to understand, this, this idea of of. The, the fact that we think sometimes that the rules of God are, are there to hurt us, they're nitpicky, they're dumb things, when actually they're there to protect us. Uzzah did not die because, he, because they didn't carry the ark on poles. He died because he touched it. Now, this is the connection. This is important. He touched it because they didn't carry the ark on poles. God's rules for us are there to protect us. And if they would have just did it according to God's word, you know what? Us, it would still be around. I don't know if it would be around today. But he would still have been all okay. They would have been all right. The, the, the parade would not have come to such a halt. But now look what happens. Verse 8. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, the place is called Perez Uzzah, which is outbreak against Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said... How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. Next exit, he gets off and finds another guy's garage and sticks it in there and says, Oh, stay here for a while. Now, here's the lesson of of, of Uzzah. And that's this, that worship without obedience is dangerous. Worship without obedience is dangerous. Now, Think for the, about the ark for a minute. What's inside the ark? The Ten Commandments. It's what the whole ark is about. It, it's symbolic of all of the law of God. And they're bringing this thing back saying, we're going to live by the law of God. And in doing it, they are disobeying God. Uh, David understood the scripture. I mean, he knew where the ark was in the first place. He knew its importance. He knew how they were supposed to carry it. But perhaps... You know, that was written 400 years ago. That was a long time ago. Now we've got the wheel. See, now we can put this baby on a cart. And now it's much more efficient and effective. We can improve on God's word. And sometimes we think that, kind of. That God's word, you know, that's for these ancient people a long time ago. But see, we've got to modify this a little bit more for my specific situation. But actually, God's word is to protect us. It's to protect us. Now, I'm guessing here that as it was, again, feeling good. 
that he was celebrating, he was worshiping God. But all of the good worship feelings, singing song, praising him, does not offset disobedience. Again, I believe David knew. This is why he got angry. He knew what the law said, and he just straight up disobeyed it for us. If we come to worship Sunday morning, and we feel the feelings, and we sing the songs, but in our heart we know what God would want us to do, but we're not going to do it. That's dangerous. That is very dangerous. Now, there are us's here today. There always are us's whenever God's people gather to worship. People who, who mean right, maybe they think right, but they just don't have time to get into God's word. They don't have time to really take seriously what he's saying. It's important that God's people, we keep in mind that the most important thing is not what goes on out here, but what goes on in here when we come to worship. Uh, obedience is key to, to proper worship. Now, so, so David goes home. Three months, he studies, he reflects, he prays. I think he repents. He says, okay, I know what we need to do. He calls his, all of his guys together and says, guys, parade number two, all right? Let's get this thing together. I, we messed up last time. My bad. Okay, let's do it this time. He call all of Israel again. They all come back from Galilee, all over the place, back to Jerusalem for this parade. And they start parade number two, verse 13. It says, when those who were carrying the ark, notice some of the differences that happened this time. When they're carrying the ark of the Lord, had taken six steps. He sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. Well, a couple different things that you notice changed. First of all, they are carrying it this time. Also, you know that they had the sacrifices going on. It was never commanded. But this is significant because they were celebrating. They were dancing. But they also stopped to realize the holiness of God. Previously, they celebrated, but God was more like a, a mascot. He was their buddy. He was someone who was their, their Statue of Liberty. They could parade around however they wanted to. But here they stop, and they, they have fun. They enjoy their worship, but they recognize the holiness of God. David is wearing a linen ephod. This is a difference. Normally, David would be wearing his, his general's outfit. He would have his armor all polished up. He'd have his crown on. He would be on an elevated throne. But that day, the only one to be elevated is God. David has stripped off his armor. He stripped off his kingly garments. And he put on a linen ephod, which was a simple white sleeveless long type of t-shirt. It was the, the, the garb of a priest who would say, I come before God with absolutely nothing. David was not riding. He was dancing. He was with the common people dancing. And he was in pretty good shape, so I'd like to see his dance. Who knows what that would have been about. And so, so the, he was dancing. And when he got to Jerusalem, typically the more women would, would join and they would have the tambourines going. It would have been quite the deal. And maybe he was looking for Michael, his wife, to join him. But Michael couldn't be there that day. Michael was too busy. She was a queen. She couldn't be tied up with worship parade stuff. She had queenly duties to do. You know, maybe she had to keep the servant schedule Maybe her royal hair needed to be fixed or royal nails needed to be taken care of. And she just, her gifts were not dancing anyway. Her gifts were more along the lines of discernment, you see. So what Michael does is she gets a seat by the window where she can watch the parade. She can observe it, not, not participate. Verse 16 says, As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, 
Michael, daughter of Saul. She wasn't the wife of David here, right? She was acting like a daughter of Saul. Watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. People who don't have anything to dance about usually despise those who do, right? And so Michael is, is aghast that her husband has, has shed his kingly garments. And so, so David is having a good time. He's having a good day. I mean, it was a great day for David until he gets home that night, right? He's having a blast of a day. He gets home that night, verse 20. It says, when David returned home to bless his household, Michael, the daughter of Saul, yeah, there it goes again, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants, as any vulgar fellow would. David is dancing with his, his servants' kids, little girls, and he's taking off all of his kingly stuff. And Michael's aghast. See, Michael was, was King Saul's daughter. She was a princess. She grew up in the palace. She knew all about palace protocol and how royalty was supposed to act. She knew all about image control. Her daddy taught her, you see, and that's, he, he managed his until he died. And the most important thing for a queen or a king, a, a wannabe or otherwise, is what other people think of you. That's all that matters. And so she was getting ready to set David straight on how a king is supposed to act. And David stops there in verse 21. David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone else from his house. When he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel, I will celebrate before the Lord. He's saying, hang on, hang on, Michael, Michael, Michael. If I'm not mistaken, God rejected that dynasty. That dynasty that thinks that this is the way we're supposed to act if we're royal royalty. And God has chosen me. How can I not but dance before him? He goes on to say, and Michael, you ain't seen nothing yet. Right? 22. I will become even more undignified than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of. I will be held in honor. Michael, these slave girls are a a lot more understanding. They're a lot more queenly than you are because they know what worshiping God involves. It involves a devoted heart. And you don't have that. And so these people who, who, who worship God out of devotion, I'm held in honor by their eyes. Now, the, the lesson of, of Michael's important for us. That's that worship without participation is deceptive. And this, this is what I mean by that. Sometimes we come to church and we come to church and we come to church and we think all that really matters is what goes on out here without even thinking that what goes on in here. And we're thinking that we're worshiping God, but we're after the manner of Michael. There are, there are Michaels here. There are Michaels every time God's people get together. They're really observance of worship. Practicing the discernment, they got some critical words for the music leaders and for the people on the stage and the pastor and the ushers and the people who did the bulletin. And they're, they're, they're critical. It's Michael. But no devotion. No devotion to God. So let me ask you, where are you this morning? Might you've been coming week after week, month, year after year after year. But you'd say, you know what, in all honesty, if you're listening to the Spirit, maybe you'd say, in all honesty, I'm worshiping this morning after the manner of Michael. 
more of an observant than a participant. Now, in my mind, I think of, of FAC. I think of Erie. And I, I think, can you imagine what would happen if the place was filled with people who worshipped God in spirit and in truth? They were obedient and they were devoted. Where what was going on out here is important, but it's way secondary to what's going on in here. I mean, they say that the era of revivals is over. But, you know, I think that God's power is not over. And I can imagine if there could be a revival in Erie, who might God want to use for that? I think if 25 years from now, might there be somebody in whatever field, engineering, doctor, pastor, missionary, salesman, whatever. But they're saying, you know what? I grew up back in Mill Creek, Pennsylvania. And one day I had a friend invite me to his church, this Alliance Church. And I came to understand who Christ was. Or, yeah, I went to high school back at McDowell, and I was a junior, and, and this other guy in school invited me to his church, gave me a life book thing, and I came to understand who Christ was, and my whole family started coming. Or I used to work in Erie, Pennsylvania, and my boss or my secretary or the guy in the QB next to me invited me to, to their church. And I was born again. Or, or our marriage was struggling, and my neighbors noticed that, and they invited me to their church. And at first it didn't make any sense, but a few weeks into this thing, I was changed. Might God be able to say that? You know, if, if there's no ir- revival that happens in Erie, and you can't manipulate God, but, but if there's no revival that happens in Erie, I, I, I trust and pray and hope that it won't be because... We were so tied up with the outward stuff without thinking about the in here. We're not, we're not concerned with the obedience or the devotion. But that's in line. We'll be able to say to him one day, God, you know, if there's no revival, it's not our fault. D.L. Moody once said, the world has yet to see what God can do through a man totally committed to him. And he says this, by God's grace, I will be that man. Uneducated shoe salesman D.L. Moody founded a school that sent more missionaries to the world than any other single school, to our knowledge. The city of Chicago was radically changed through D.L. Moody. Wouldn't it be amazing if as a church we could say the world has yet to see what God can do through a church totally committed to him by God's grace we will be that church. If, you, if, if you'd be willing to, to say that and say it to him and say it to yourself, would you, would you repeat this with me? And keep in mind, God's hearing. And if it's not where your heart is, just kind of fake it or something. But, but, but go with me on this. The world has yet to see what God can do through a church totally committed to him. By God's grace, we will be that church. Pray with me. And as we pray, the choir is going to be coming out. So kind of put out that noise for a minute and focus as we come before him. Because, God, we we are here this morning to say thank you, Lord, again. for I thank you for Dan Norwood and Jeff Walker and all these guys that these people will never know about. But they worshiped you in spirit and truth. They were devoted to you. They were obedient, not perfect, but you used it in my life. And God, I would think of the the boys and girls and teenagers and men and women who are living within the area of this church who don't know you, 
and right now are lost. And God, I would pray that you would use us, that you would remind us, God, over and over again that everybody spends forever somewhere. And would you let that cause an urgency to be in our hearts to worship you with everything we've got. Lord, we don't want to be buckets who just soak up. We want to be pipes. We want your grace to flow through us, your forgiveness and your word to flow through us. And so as we look forward, God, to this future, we know it's all of your power. But we pray that we would be people that you can use and people that you will use for the sake of your kingdom here in Erie. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.